Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me for today's show is Nabila Islam. Nabila, how are you? I'm great. I'm excited to be on again. It's good to have you back. It's been a little bit. Yeah, well, you know, I've been on the ground working, trying to get out these votes uh, in Gwinnett County. So on today's podcast, we are going to pick up kind of where we left off from my last podcast with Luke. In the last episode, we talked about the first batch of Atlanta Press Club debates, um, including the debate in the Senate seat where David Perdue is the incumbent, as well as debates in the 6th and 7th Congressional District. Um, today, we are going to pick up where we left off and talk about the Press Club's debate for the Senate seat currently held by Kelly Leffler. This was a wild debate in what has been a really wild race. But before we get to that, we are going to talk about the long lines that were seen at early voting locations across the state last week. Uh, Nabila, I know you were out at some of these uh, locations in Gwinnett County and, and talked to some voters. So I'm interested to hear from you about what voters had to say and, and about what you're seeing on the ground in Gwinnett. Yeah, you know, I woke up on, uh, you know, Monday, last Monday, the first day of early voting, and I immediately heard that there's these, you know, super long lines. Uh, and right now I'm actually working with our Gwinnett County Party uh, to help with, you know, getting out the vote, making sure that people have you know, the resources to be to be able to vote easily. And so I um, went to two locations. I went to the Gwinnett County Fair grounds. And I went to the one that I heard the most commotion at was the uh, Gwinnett Elections Board Office. And um, I went to the Gwinnett Fairgrounds and the line was just wrapped around. It was huge. I was told that the morning of they had trouble uh, processing um, a bunch of, of folks that showed up with disabilities, you know, wanted to vote without any uh, delay, but apparently they, for, they didn't have whatever they needed to process people um, smoothly. And that was, that created a delay. Uh, and then I, when I went to the Georgia elections board's office, so this is the only early voting location out of nine where the board of commissions uh, decided to cut, uh, voting hours. And it's actually the, one of the most highly, one of the most dense voting locations as well. And so when I showed up, I met people that had been in line since 8:45 a.m. and it was 2:15 p.m. when I spoke to them. They had not seen the front of the line yet. Like it was wrapped around in three circles. You couldn't tell anything. People were just like it it, it did not look it didn't look like I was in America. Okay? So it did not, I um and it was just really concerning that these lines were so long um and I don't and I think it and I what I've learned since then, it was because, yes, there was an issue with, you know, bandwidth that has since been fixed, but we are a county of, you know, a million residents and we only have nine early voting locations, which is lower than what Cobb and Fulton and DeKalb have. Um, and so I thought that was a real issue. So I saw some of these lines on Twitter and, you know, I thought back to the, the 2018 election, the, the problems with the primaries. Um, so this is, you know, having long lines and, and technical breakdowns at our voting locations is not something that is new to this state. It's, it's an ongoing problem. But one of the things I thought about when I saw people raise alarm about the long lines on the first day of early voting was, well, it's the first day of early voting, there's going to be additional early vote days, plus the election day, plus the opportunity to vote absentee. Um, so I was wondering why people would actually stand in the the eight hour line long, eight hour long lines in some places to vote. Did you get any sense from people you talked to about why they were still willing to stand in line for such a long time, even though there might be subsequent opportunities to vote? You know, people have been waiting to have their voice heard at the ballot box after being, you know, traumatized by. Uh, Donald Trump in this administration and by, uh, you know, so many of our local elected officials that have let us down. And I think folks are, were just ready and they were excited to, you know, cast their votes. Um, no one thought that it was, you know, early voting is supposed to usually be, you you know, you might, the first day might have, a, you know, longer lines, but eight hours, that's just not, that's insane. And I don't think anyone could have predicted that. Um, and I, people were so committed, though to making sure that they waited in that line and they wanted their votes to be counted. And I, I think it goes back to just all the shenanigans that we've seen in, in Gwinnett County, especially with uh, voter suppression and people wanting to make sure in person that their vote was going to be counted. 
especially since uh, so many people, you know, went out of their way to actually request an absentee ballot, but never received it. And so they've already kind of feel, you know, uncertain about the voting process. And so I think a lot of people just just um, anxious to have their votes counted immediately. So you alluded to this one uh, explanation that the Secretary of State's office gave was that there were long lines at some of these precincts because the computers that are used to check in voters had a hard time getting the data that they needed to get the list of voters that they used to check people in and give them all the the information they need to vote and have their vote processed by these new voting machines. And I was thinking about it. I was like, gosh, that problem sounds really familiar. It's one, it's one of a long list of problems that the state has faced, but that one, you know, I feel like I've heard that one before. And I found this report from Stephen Fowler at Georgia Public Broadcasting, who's been following these issues really closely, where he reported on a ruling that required precincts on election day to have a backup paper list of all of the voters who are eligible to vote in that precinct, as well as as much data as possible about, for instance, whether or not that person voted absentee, which should help facilitate the check-in process at the polls. And that because these precincts were having difficulty accessing this data, they were just slow in checking people in, getting them through the voting process and getting them out the door. And that's sort of what added to these lines. In that report that Stephen Fowler covered, he wrote about an order from Judge Totenberg, who has been overseeing a lot of these elections-related cases that requires precincts to have this backup paper list at the polling place on election day. And what I can infer from, from her order that I read and Stephen's reporting on this is that the precincts were not required to have this backup paper information during early vote. And so they were probably relying fully on the computers that are supposed to draw mm-hmm. this information and, and had trouble doing so. What do you make of just these like ongoing administrative problems that, you know, one by one can seem kind of small and, and should be easy fixes, but add up to eight hour lines and, and people having to wait forever to vote? It's incompetency, right? Uh, It's been such a struggle to to understand how any of this works. (laughs) And for I mean, I've been trying to research, like you know, why we can't expand more early voting locations, uh, or what you need to do if your ballot hasn't come in the mail, and what do you do when you get like early, can you early vote? What does that look like? I mean, it's like, none of this information is centralized. Um, I think that these poll workers aren't that, you know, are employed during early voting and on election day aren't, aren't the best trained. Um, They aren't set up for success. Um, I think also uh, a lot of these um, elections uh, boards, the the elections offices are, are not, they're not as efficient that as they as they should be, and I I don't understand. And, and I'm going to be frank right now. Like I don't understand why. Like you have this is your job. Like, like <laughs> what? Why is it that there's so many um, small issues that yes, they all build up uh, and they end up you know causing a, a a really bad outcome, in, such as long lines, and they could have been prevented. And, and like you brought you said yourself, like. These are issues that have come up before. Like, how do we know? How are we not foreseeing them and fixing them as we go? Um, and I think it's because whoever is at the top, and in this case, the Secretary of the State, is not making it a priority to have a streamlined system and to fix these, uh, you know, problems. And listen, it's you're it's a mistake. If you fix a mistake the first time, it's fine. But if you keep repeating the same mistake over and over again, that's a complete failure of um, the Secretary of State's office. Um, and it's unacceptable that they've continued for this to go on as long as it has. The thing that's so frustrating to me is we just bought this brand new voting system and this one piece of the voting system, the infrastructure that delivers 
the voter registration information to precincts for the check-in process is some legacy system that was not updated. And so it's like you went through all this trouble, spend a bunch of money on a brand new system, and they have this one piece of it that is still the old thing, and it still doesn't work. And it's like, I don't know, I just, it's it's constantly whack-a-mole with all of these different problems. And it feels like, to me as an observer, the only way that solutions get forced in this is when advocates sue the state and get Judge Totenberg to write an order forcing them to do something. It, it doesn't feel like very much progress has been made by just individual action by the Secretary of State's office or by the counties that have struggled with this. You know, it just doesn't feel like there's any progress unless there's a court order involved. Another great report from Stephen Fowler, um, I'm a big fan of his elections reporting. Um, he has a report out with ProPublica and Georgia Public Broadcasting that also, you know, provides some explanations about wait times and about the number of precincts that have been available to voters as Georgia's population has grown. He analyzed some data and, and found um, this really telling factoid to me that on the June 9th primaries, the average amount of time that voters had to wait if they were in line when their precinct closed, that wait time was only six minutes in places where 90% of the voters were white. But that wait time at the precinct closure time was 51 minutes where where 90% of the voters at that precinct were black. He also found that six of the seven most congested uh, polling locations in Gwinnett County were in predominantly non-white neighborhoods. And that uh, this investigation that he did focused on the metro Atlanta area, that the metro Atlanta area has about half of the state's voters, but only 38% of the state's polling locations. This is yet another piece of that puzzle that explains why you've seen the lines that you've seen on election day and why those lines appear to be in disproportionately non-white neighborhoods, you know, you get this sort of anecdotal information from Twitter when you watch Twitter on election day. And this, I think, really provides some substantive backup to those observations a lot of observers made that these long wait times are systemic and they are happening primarily in precincts and, and in neighborhoods where where non-white voters make up a large share of the electorate. What do, what do you make of... Uh, what Stephen Fowler found in that report. I, I saw the report and I thought it was, I was even surprised by some of the information in there. Like I had no idea that nine Metro Atlanta counties have, have about half the state's voters, but only 38% of the state's polling locations. Uh, that was a very alarming to me. I, I listen, I, I think that a lot of this, is, I mean, it is voter suppression. Voter suppression is real, no matter you know what Republicans will say. And we need to have more polling locations in these black and brown neighborhoods. And that's not happening. Um, even though the population, let's talk about Gwinnett County, even though the, you know, the population here has dramatically grown in the last 10 years, our polling locations have not kept up to date. Uh, and so, yes, we have uh, our, you know, our, our predominantly um, Republican county commission, election supervisor and elections board um, have not make it, made it a priority to expand access to, 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 for people to vote. That's why I think that this is happening, these longer lines in black and brown neighborhoods. And, and these are the areas where the populations have grown substantially. It makes me sad that nothing really gets fixed unless, you, as you mentioned, um, it's advocates on the ground that will um, you know, create a lot of no noise uh, around the issue uh, for it to be fixed. But it seems to me that access to the ballot isn't a priority for our elections board or the secretary of state. Um, and if it were, we wouldn't be, uh, you know, uh, ma making national headlines for uh, the debacle that is our election system in Georgia. Well, and one thing I think worth noting when you try to look for solutions on this issue is that all of this really does stem from the Supreme Court's ruling in 2013 that gutted the Voting Rights Act by invalidating Section 5, the section of the Voting Rights Act that required either the state or counties to get approval from the federal government when they would make changes to their policies for election administration that may have a disproportionate impact on black and brown people. And now, you know, th we have seen the trend of precinct closures accelerate 
since that 2013 ruling. And it seems to me the evidence is pretty clear that when you saw the number of precinct closures accelerate following following that ruling at a rate that you did not see when Section 5 preclearance was still in place, that that is an important factor in the tools that conservative governments have used to make it more difficult to vote, vote, to put up barriers to voting. And so it's important, I think, you know, not only to look at the state level and to look at the processes used at the local level to administer these elections, but I think, you know, we've learned and and had to relearn that the federal government does have a role here. Um, And Democrats in the U.S. House in December did pass legislation that would restore Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act in some form. Um, obviously, that went nowhere in the Senate, and it's it's not a piece of legislation that President Trump would sign. Um, but if after November's elections, Democrats control the U.S. Senate and Joe Biden sits in the White House, that is a measure that seems pretty likely to become law. Yes, um, we absolutely need to, f- to fix our election system um, at the federal level. We definitely have a role there uh, where this piece of legislation is sitting in the Senate uh, and it needs to be passed by them for hopefully uh, a President Biden to sign into, a, into effect. And you know we have two really great opportunities here in Georgia with you know, Ossoff's race and uh, replacing Isaacson uh, with a Democrat. And so I, you know, the Voting Rights Act was definitely, um, ha- that section, five being gutted was a real blow uh, to, um, you know, uh, for Democrats. And so um, here in, you know, I I keep bringing up Gwinnett because I live here, but, uh, you know, cutting the hours uh, for an early voting location because of budget concerns is something that you wouldn't have been able to do without preclearance. But now people can go about, um, you know, creating what hours they want, uh, cutting them, uh, closing down precincts, uh, and but they'll do it in the guise of being fiscally responsible. Oh, we have to look at the budget. Um, but when you look at the budget at whole, you'll see the ridiculous things that Republicans are spending money on. But when it comes to um, creating more access to the ballot, it's like all of a sudden their wallets are are closed. Um, they they just can't. They, they you know. And uh, clearly, uh, this is a, a layer in voter suppression uh, of limiting people's opportunity to vote. And so. Um, we absolutely need to make sure that at the federal level, we do everything that we can. Well, let's talk about one of those opportunities that Democrats have to send a Democrat to the U.S. Senate from Georgia. Um, Earlier this week, we saw the final Atlanta Press Club debate. The candidates that participated in this debate were incumbent Senator Kelly Loeffler, Republican Doug Collins, Democrats Reverend Raphael Warnock, Matt Lieberman, and Ed Tarver, and Libertarian candidate Brian Slowinski. What we observed in that debate was really, I thought, this very confusing mishmash of a Republican primary debate between Kelly Loeffler and Doug Collins, then a brief breakout of a general election Democrat versus Republican debate between Kelly Loeffler and Reverend Warnock, with these two what felt like sort of like independent third party challenger types in Matt Lieberman and Brian Slowinski, even though Matt Lieberman is in this race as officially as a as a Democratic candidate. And then you had this sort of the random random interjections from Ed Tarver. And I think the the thing that sort of defined this debate within sort of the Republican primary aspect of it was all of this back and forth between Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins about a lot of subjects that, I don't know, to me just didn't seem entirely relevant to the moment. A lot of opportunities to blame China for the coronavirus, to uh, hit Doug Collins on something related to big tech regulations, and for the two of them to compete about who is the strongest ally of President Trump. Um, Let's listen to one exchange between Leffler and Collins. Kelly, you talk tough about China, but you refuse to delist corporations that are owned by the Chinese Communist Party from the New York Stock Exchange, which you own. So I have a question for you. Do you still have the $56,000 portrait of Chairman Mao hanging in your foyer as it was seen on social media? Seems a little hypocritical, or maybe it's just enlightening after that last exchange. You know, uh, I, I'm glad I'm glad you asked that question, uh, Congressman. You know, I think Georgians are tired of lies. 
Um, hardworking Georgians want the truth. They're tired of a campaign that has been filled with lies directed at me. Let me tell you the truth. Governor Kemp appointed me because I am the true conservative in this race. Now, look, you've said I have no place here, that I'm only here because of my husband, that I should do something I'm qualified for. But you know what? You've attacked my hair, my makeup, how I talk, my clothes, where I'm from. You've lied about me. You've lied about my family. And let me tell you, here's the truth. I'm here because I've earned everything I got. I am the true conservative. I don't have to have a record that I have to lie about and cover up. I encourage everyone to look at Doug Collins for Senate.com and understand he is one of the most liberal Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives. That's why Governor Kemp appointed me to the Senate. And I'm fighting for every single Georgian's chance to live the American dream that I was so blessed to live. And uh, Doug Collins, a uh, 30 second rebuttal there for you. Well, I just really don't know where to start with the most amazing lies that just started. I've never mentioned anything personally about her fixtures, hair, or anything else. But it's amazing what she talked about me. And she spent over $35 million doing it. You know what's really interesting here, Kelly? This is really the true issue. There are lies going on. It's the lies about what you used to do when you worked with Planned Parenthood, when you worked with Michael Bloomberg, when you won't delist companies. You see, there's a choice here. You don't have to wait for legislation. You could actually go against the Chinese Communist Party right now, but you won't. And so I'd like to say, respond. Maybe, maybe, the, maybe let me finish, and then I'll let you respond. But you could delist now, but you don't do it. So when it's the choice between policies and pocketbook, everybody in the state of Georgia knows where you stand. Nabila, what do you make of that? exchange between them. I mean, so much of our politics has been focused on the the coronavirus and I don't know. I it, I just feel like Collins and Leffler sometimes are in in this completely different universe. Do you think that these attacks that they're constantly levying back and forth with each other are those effective is it is it moving any votes for them? I, I that clip was uh really uh comical. Um and it just reminds me of how much of a politician Doug Collins is, his line about policies and pocketbook, uh, very talking pointish. Uh, but I think that overall, both of them recognize that they need to win the race that's ahead of them. And, you know, this is essentially a primary. And uh, in order, I, I bet their polling shows them. And, and, and I say this because this is what their messaging has been like, uh, that they need to win over their base, which happens to unfortunately be a bunch of Trumpers. Um, and I think that this type of red meat stuff uh, works with them, unfortunately. Uh, and I and I think that's why you know you've heard um, Kelly Loeffler say stuff about how China gave Donald Trump the virus. And I think that uh, Loff, uh, Doug Collins hitting on he, he's constantly hit on on the fact that she is you know one of the most wealthiest, if not the most wealthiest candidate in the U.S. Senate. Collins's attacks on Loeffler are a little bit more warranted because he does go after the fact that she's, you know, aloof, out of touch. You know, Loeffler even says herself that she's trying to make sure that everyone else can have the American dream that she has. But I mean, you know, her husband owns the New York Stock Exchange and uh, she founded a, she owns a basketball team. Um, She's very out of touch. Um, It's, it just seems like a pissing match to see who's more Trumper, Trumpier than the other. And I mean, they're not talking about issues. They're just talking about like, you know, each other's like personality and uh, personal attacks. My favorite thing about that response is she she takes this big stand to stand for herself as somebody who deserves to be there, who earned everything she got as she, as she sits in a Senate seat that was handed to her by Governor Kemp that she hasn't faced voters for yet, and that uh, she is running a campaign that is largely bankrolled on the wealth of, of her and her husband who are pouring money. She's poured a bunch of money into her own campaign, and her husband is funding a super PAC that uh, is defending her. Um, as a sort of an, an, an external defense. Um, I did, though, notice in these exchanges between Leffler and Collins, and then in some of the exchanges between Leffler and Warnock, I do feel like Kelly Leffler has sort of set the terms of this race, and a lot of the other candidates in this race are responding to the positions that she has taken or trying to sort of disprove the claims that Kelly Leffler is putting forward, you know, she has really centered this discussion on China and trying to hold China accountable for giving Trump the coronavirus, whatever that really means. She's also, you know, made 
a lot out of this claim that she has this 100% voting record with Trump. But I don't know that having conversations about those things is like necessarily beneficial to her. Like she's driven the conversation there, but it, it invites all of these challenges to her wealth. It invites all of these challenges to to her voting record and her allegiance to the president that just doesn't immediately strike me as beneficial in the long term. Uh, you know, it could be beneficial in this quasi-Republican primary, but like the way in which she's sort of structured this has has required her to stand so close to the president that this is how she answered a question from Matt Lieberman about President Trump. Kelly, can you name something that President Trump has said or done uh, that you disagree with? No, because I am proud to be the only U.S. senator with a 100 percent voting record with President Trump. I've been named the most conservative senator in the U.S. Senate. And I've been endorsed by National Right to Life. That's because I will always stand up for conservative values. That's what this president is doing. He's lifted the economy to new heights. He created an economy that created record employment for African-Americans, Asian-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, that gave us, gave us energy independence, that supported our farmers, our hardworking men and women in the military, and supported peace with uh, in the Middle East. And, you know, what this president has done is unprecedented during a pandemic when he's trying to fight the swamp, the radical left, China, and the fake news, and now big tech, who my opponents have sided with. So I think it's really important we understand that we are blessed in this country to have a president who's fighting every single day for every American's opportunity to live the American dream. Nabila, I don't know if I've ever seen a candidate for office make themselves so secondary to someone else and tie themselves to the fortunes of someone else. Is that, I don't, what do you, what do you, what do you make of that? Well, I think that the irony of Kelly Loeffler is the fact that, you know, Brian Kemp appointed her because she was going to be the candidate that was going to help, uh, you know, win back all these suburban white women that have essentially left the Republican Party and uh, because of Donald Trump. And now you have, you know, Kelly Loeffler, you know, talking about how she's, you know, second to Donald Trump, basically, and, and is, you know, right behind him and everything that he does. In my opinion, it, it makes her seem out of touch with reality. I mean, Donald Trump is not doing great in the polls. Um, it's, it, might, it might help her in a primary election, but I think it's going to really hurt her in a, in a general election. I mean, if you've been watching her commercials, they're kind of just out there as well with you know something about where she's more conservative than the Till of the Hun. I think she's, her game plan is to make it seem like she's the Trumpiest candidate. Uh, that there is. And so she's trying to tie herself as much as possible to the president. I did think there was a bit of a low hanging fruit answer for her there that she could have shot back at Doug Collins about. She could have said that he, that she disagreed with president Trump when Trump wanted Brian Kemp to appoint Doug Collins to that seat instead of her, and then pivoted into some argument about how she's better to represent the state or, or more conservative or, or whatever she wanted to say there. I don't, the like, if you if you watched it live, like she did sort of like sit there on the question for a second and then she was like, no, <laughs> like there is literally nothing Donald Trump has ever done that you could like say you disagree with. I don't I don't know. That approach is just it's it's a unique one. Um, Reverend Warnock did kind of pick up on this sort of never ending back and forth in in Republican primary fashion between Leffler and Collins, um, he was asked by one of the reporters on the panel if he would wear a mask and social distance if he was um, at an event with the president. Um, here's what he said about that and what he said about the Republican response to COVID-19. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we should all be engaged in social distancing and we should all be wearing a mask. The science is very clear on this. And I wish that uh, uh, the folks who are serving in Washington would pay attention to the science instead of politicizing something as basic and obvious as wearing a mask. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm deeply concerned and, and disappointed uh, that Senator Leffler uh, was at the White House without wearing a mask and um, that she is enabling this president. We're nine months into this pandemic and government is not doing what it can do. We still haven't seen a national 
coordinated response to this epidemic. What we're seeing is the typical bickering that we see among Washington politicians, Co Collins and Leffler attacking each other using these code words. Meanwhile, I'm talking to ordinary citizens and they're trying to figure out how they're gonna make their way through the dense fog of an epidemic, take care of their families, and get their children back in schools in ways that are actually safe. We hey, need Scott. leaders who stand up for ordinary people. Scott. Hey, he, uh, I'd just, like to respond just to just Scott. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, Ms. Leffler, you were called out there. You get the first rebuttal at 30 seconds. Thank you, Scott. Look, you know, we have followed the guidelines that the president has put out, that the health authorities have put out. And of course, we have to follow the science. But Democrats have politicized this to the point where they make a vaccine politicized. If they're so big on following the science, they should welcome a vaccine under this president. But let's be very clear what you just heard. The Democrats want to keep our economy locked down. They want kids out of school. They want people out of the work. They want businesses closing. We have to fight for everyday Americans needs and, and making sure that they can keep their jobs, their schools, and that's because that is what's going to solve our yeah. problem. Nabila, in the other Atlanta Press Club debates, there was a lot of emphasis from Democratic candidates on accountability for Republicans um, in their handling of the pandemic. And that one, I think, was really one of the very few instances where conversation in this debate really returned to the pandemic and in the response to it. What did you think of Warnock's answer there? I thought that was a great answer. I mean, he brought it back to science. And I mean, like with Republicans, science usually has a, a liberal bias. <laughs> but I, I think that, you know, you know, we're in a pandemic where over 215,000 Americans have passed away from COVID-19 um, from you know, during a pan during this pandemic, we have a government that still has not um, implemented a national plan on how we were going to beat back this virus. We don't have a national plan on contact tracing. Um, people are still, you know, struggling to get, you know, their tests. You know, uh, we're seeing a, a slow second wave come about, um, and as as is happening in Europe right now, um, I think it was right for him to, you know, talk about how we need to be rooted in science and make sure that we're protecting our kids, make sure we're protecting the elderly, the vulnerable. Uh, I think it's unacceptable that it's, you know, it's the Republicans that are politicizing this and making it seem like, you know, the, that uh, the Democrats are, are against um, the quality of life of people when in fact we are trying to keep people alive um, all the while where, you know, the Republicans are the ones that are trying to, you know, sacrifice our grandmothers in order to, uh, you know, restart the economy. Now, I've, I've said this, you know, multiple times is, you know, you can rebuild the economy, but you can't bring back the life of a loved one. Uh, and so they, I think that the way the Republicans have been going about the pandemic has been very crass. Um, you know, it's over, it's, uh, I think it's 85% of people that have passed away from COVID-19 are elderly people over the age of 65. Um, it, you know, it's predominantly worse for black and brown people than it is for um, white people. And so um, they're not, I, I appreciate Democrats and, you know, Reverend Warnock, you know, holding it down and talking about the issues and how it's affecting people on the ground because uh, Republicans are just very, they don't want to acknowledge reality and uh, the gaslighting needs to stop and we need to be um, taking care of people. The other thing I observed in that response was this to me kind of echoed some of the moments from Joe Biden in the first and, and only presidential debate we've had so far where he just kind of tried to cut through all the bullshit and turn to the camera and, and speak to the audience Warnock does have this opportunity to win this race outright. It it seems like a long shot given all the candidates that are in this race. And, and as of now, Matt Lieberman and Ed Tarver are still Democrats who are taking a, a non-trivial share of votes. But I don't, to me, Nabila, that just felt like this opportunity for him to try to pull this race out of the Republican primary that it's really been in the media that where the media's focus has been and try to drag it back to, you know, an election with real policy stakes and real stakes for the lives of people. Um, I thought he did it effectively there, but you know, it's still an uphill battle for him to, to try to win this race outright uh, on election day in, in two weeks. 
it would be really nice for him to be able to win this over 50%. I think it gets a lot harder in a runoff, but I, I, I think that voters are paying attention. And that's why Reverend Warnock right now is in a double digit lead, right. Um, in, um, and against all of his democratic opponents. Um, and they appreciate that he's been real with what's happening on the ground. Um, instead of, you know, running a campaign, that's, you know, a bunch of, uh, talking points essentially, um, because people are hurting right now. There are millions of people that have lost their jobs. There are, you know, hundreds of thousands of people that have died. Um, there are people that, um, because they're not going to get, um, you know, assistance from the federal government, uh, are looking at losing their homes. Uh, I mean, th- these are these real issues that are affecting working people right now that I think the Republicans are, are just not talking about. And, and so, uh, it would be, it would be amazing that if, if we could just win this outright in November, because, as we know, Democrats don't perform as well in, in runoffs in comparison to Republicans. But I think that we're, we're up for the fight, even, at, even, even next year. Well, actually, something you mentioned, Nabila, makes me... One of the things that I have been incensed by watching both this debate and the debate between uh, David Perdue and John Ossoff was how Republicans have mischaracterized the negotiations over COVID relief that are going on in Washington right now. Um, and it, it feels benign compared to some of the other sort of more outlandish claims that have been made. But the status of negotiations in Washington is that the White House is negotiating with Democrats in the U.S. House, primarily with Nancy Pelosi to try to strike some sort of deal on a COVID relief bill. And we're recording on Tuesday evening and Nancy Pelosi over the weekend set sort of a Tuesday deadline to try to come to some sort of agreement between the White House and Democrats in the House on a COVID relief package. And presumably because Pelosi's involved in these negotiations, anything that comes out of those negotiations between Trump's White House and Pelosi is going to pass the U.S. House. And it is Mitch McConnell who is telling the White House and telling the press that the White House should not strike a deal on COVID relief because Republicans in the U.S. Senate will not back whatever deal Trump's White House comes up with with Nancy Pelosi. And both Kelly Loeffler in this debate and David Perdue in the one uh, from last week both allege that it's Democrats who are not allowing relief to move forward. When it, in fact, it is Democrats negotiating with Donald Trump of all people in, in his White House that are trying to get a solution on the table and in doing so right before an election where a big victory on COVID relief could be a negative political thing for Democrats. They're the ones putting policy over politics and Republicans have just presented this this claim that is just not based in reality about what's going on in Washington. Well, you know, it, they're putting politics over people. They're power hungry. They just want to make sure they can protect their uh, positions in power. As for Republicans repeating over and over again, that's Democrats that, you know, don't want COVID relief. We all know that's a lie, but we also understand that if you say something enough times, people think it's true. Uh, <laughs> and I think, uh, you know, that's what the Republicans are doing, especially to, uh, their base, um, they're eating that up and, and, and you know, vilifying Democrats. Um, and I, at the end of the day, I think it, this is just, you know, very self-serving. Putting your, your constituents' lives at stake so that you can, um, you know, score, score a point, uh, that you can uh, win, a, win a re-election or, or, or win an election. I just think it's so gross. Um, and that's just the, you know, the reality of our politics today. And especially, um, a lot of, uh, you know, folks in the Republican Party. Um, and I just, it's just so disheartening to see that this is what it's come to. And I really hope that soon enough, we can get uh, some type of relief package on the table immediately, because, you know, folks are desperately hurting right now. One final clip. And in, in this last clip, I think you see a preview of what a runoff between uh, Reverend Warnock and Kelly Leffler could look like if those are the two candidates that end up in the runoff in January. Uh, this was a question from Kelly Leffler to Reverend Warnock during the candidate question part of the debate. Mr. Warnock, you've called police officers thugs, bullies, and gangsters. You've characterized them as a threat to our children. Will you apologize to our hardworking men and women in law enforcement and to Georgia families for these dangerous and hurtful attacks? 
I have deep respect for police officers and law enforcement. And uh, I believe that the senator knows this. Certainly the members of the law enforcement know this. Uh, this is why they've come to my church on a couple of occasions, as they remembered fallen officers who died uh, in the tour in uh, the line of duty. Uh, so I support law enforcement. Uh, they've come to my church many times. We work together. I think it's possible to appreciate the work that law enforcement members do, and at the same time hold them accountable. We see abuse in uh, all kinds of professions. Uh, we see it uh, among those who hold office, who abuse their authority, uh, focused on their own uh, uh, their own financial wealth rather than the people they're supposed to be representing. And so I'll continue to fight uh, for safe communities, and I'll continue to fight to make sure uh, that we all have equal protection under the law. That's always been my goal, equal protection under the law. And Kelly Leffler, a 30-second response. Well, I, you know, I, I find it tragic that you will not uh, apologize for these comments attacking our brave men and women in blue. They are on the thin blue line, keeping our families safe. And I think it's vitally important that everyone understand the sacrifices that they make every day they put on the badge and wear the uniform. That's why I've introduced legislation that defunds cities, that defund the police. These brave men and women know that I will always have their back and I will stand up to any who tries to uh, diminish their role or attack the their profession. Listen, I do not think that we should defund the police. Uh, and I've never said that. Uh, I do think that it's lamentable that the senator is using her power uh, to politicize an issue where people are literally dying on the streets. What we could use a senator doing is putting forward the kind of reform that we need in our criminal justice system. We need to get rid of qualified immunity. We need independent review process when civilians die at the hand of police. We can do that and at the same time appreciate the great work that our police officers do. So Nabila, I think Kelly Leffler would prefer if the two of them are in a runoff in January, that the election be about issues like that. What did you make of that line of questioning from Senator Leffler and, and the response from Reverend Warnock? I, you know, she's trying to frame it as, you know, she's the law and order candidate and um, in Reverend Warnock is against the police. Um, you know, Loeffler is the candidate I, that I think is yet to even say that Black Lives Matter. Uh, they, you know, she's politicized Black Lives Matter, uh, the movement. And, um, you know, she's just constantly been, look, listen, at the end of the day, no, no one is saying that, you know, all police officers are bad. You know, they do, you know, protect our society, but there has to be some level of accountability. And I think that that's what the Reverend is pointing out is that, you know, under the current system that is our criminal justice system, it unfairly, you know, targets black and brown people, especially young black men when a leading cause of death for young black men is being shot by the police. It's a problem and you have to address it. And uh, she, I think that if, if there was a runoff between them both, I think she would prefer, yes, it would be him and her. And, and that's how, I think that's the, the line that she was going to, you know, is probably planning to draw between her and Warnock. Um, I think Warnock fares better if it is Loeffler that's in the runoff instead of Collins, um, because he can really paint her as, you know, out of touch, um, you know, one that doesn't, won't stand up for racial justice and criminal justice reform. Um, so I think that's what she's trying to do. She's just trying to paint this election as her being for law and order and, and Raphael Warnock for not being for law and order. Uh, and that's what I think the runoff will look like if it's between them both. I don't, in a normal election, I, I think that that could end up being a mistake. And I think you can sort of see where her calculation is different from David Perdue's. Um, Perdue is going to be in a regular Democrat Republican election on election day on November 3rd. And if Kelly Leffler and, and Raphael Warnock are the two in the runoff, they're going to be in this runoff in January after the election has taken place. And, and who knows, based on the results, who's going to be enthused to show up to vote, who's going to sort of be feeling like their job is done. Um, but I, I do notice that David Perdue put together an ad saying, presenting a similar message about standing in support of police, but then noting some specific police reforms like body cameras that would be helpful. He, he endorses those in one of his own ads. That's David Perdue, the Republican candidate in the other Senate race. Um, and to me, 
Kelly Leffler, she mentioned this bill that she has that would defund cities that defund the police. And it is this example, I think, of her just extremely vacuous campaign where she sees herself only as a message in the culture war and not as somebody who has a real job, a real policymaking job in Washington and and some duty to find solutions to problems that the country faces. That response from her is just so tone deaf to all of the people that demonstrated in the streets this summer and all of the people who may not have demonstrated but have observed what's gone on and been like, yeah, this is this is not right. And if if somebody's just gonna sit there and and campaign on on slogans and have no desire to find real solutions like you know what are you doing she she sounds disconnected i mean even when she's giving responses it sounds like she's reading a script than she is as someone that's like speaking from the heart um i mean it just it just literally sounds like someone you know gave her the most extreme talking points and she's just repeating them over and over again like a parrot um i don't know if she even necessarily believes the things that she says uh, you know, she was again appointed to this seat because of her wealth, not because she has a, you know, lived lived a life committed to public service in helping people. And I, it's just like you know, the seat is more like a, a hobby for her essentially um, than it is to actually help people. Um, you can tell that she is someone that you know. I always say that well, not I, just me, but there's a saying that you know, um, there are two different elected officials, two different types of leaders, one leader who wants to be someone and the other leader wants to do something. I think Loeffler just wants to, you know, be someone. And it's, um, it's very disheartening to see uh, how insane that her rhetoric is um, in this race. Um, She's made headlines multiple times for her outlandish comments. uh, And it's, it's embarrassing. Um, And I, I, at the very least, appreciate it's weird to say I appreciate something that Purdue is doing, but for him to even acknowledge, uh, you know, body cameras, um, and that's something that I don't even think Loeffler would even touch. Um, so she's been, she's an extremely, she's a very radical uh, Republican and um, not where uh, the average American is, definitely. Yeah, and I think, Nabila, it's not just us as progressive people that are saying this. Eric Erickson sent out a note to his email list um, where he said that he was going to vote for Kelly Leffler, but he said that Kelly Leffler's campaign team had done a disservice to her by trying so hard to align her with President Trump that she's not defined by her own acumen, intelligence, and story, um, and that it's clear that Kelly Leffler doesn't come across as authentically as Doug Collins does. But I think that's not just the fault of the campaign of Kelly Leffler, of her advisors, of of anybody like that. I think, you know, she as the candidate has to sort of step in and and say, let me be who I am or let me speak from my heart or let me actually say what I mean. And if she is comfortable being a senator and being a politician where her own agency is something that she just willingly gives up to her staff, to her political advisors, like that says a lot about who she is and and the the way she approaches this job that I think is really relevant when she is basically interviewing to get rehired to this position. Yeah, no, I mean, as someone that just ran for office, um, I think it's so important. And she doesn't, and I agree with Eric, um, she doesn't come off as authentic. Doug Collins does an amazing job, uh, to his credit, of coming off very warm and friendly and authentic. Uh, and Leffler is just, she sounds very robotic. Um, you know, a rubber stamp for Donald Trump has lacks a personality of her own. I, I, we really don't know who she is. I've heard comments from the folks that uh, the basketball team that she's owned, um, that this isn't the Leffler that, um, that we've, we know, you know, we don't know who this new person is. Uh, and it is problematic to see someone give up their agency, give up who they are, um, and just, you know, be a parrot for these talking points that your consultants tell you to repeat. It does, it does say a lot about, about you and what you're willing to stand for and what you're not willing to stand for. Um, and at the end of the day, like, 
who wants to be trapped in a false identity, you know, and, and projecting someone that they're not. Uh, and, and it seems like she's okay with it. Um, and that's why, I mean, she's, she sounds like a cartoon. There you go. Kelly Loeffler is a cartoon. She's not a real person. And in that in like, and I'm not even saying this in, to be like a, a partisan comment, like it, it, she, she lacks, and I think that's why um, she lacks the ability to connect with people in the way that Collins has. And it's going to be a real problem for her. Uh, not real, not going to be a real problem. It is a real problem. Um, so much so that I think despite, you know, spending over $30 million of her, like, her own money, uh, Doug Collins has a shot in overtaking her. Um, and so this could be a, a runoff where it's probably going to be Warnock and Collins. I think she did make an attempt to speak up for herself when she said, you know, Doug Collins has said all these lies about my appearance, about my family, about where I'm from, about, you know, all of this stuff about her background. And then she tried to turn and say, you know, she's somebody who's, who feels like she's being generous by dedicating her time to public service now. And she donates her salary just like President Trump does. And I was like, even that to me just doesn't come off as very commendable because she is not somebody who's like spent her entire life, like, in this career trying to improve life outcomes for people. She's somebody who like got an MBA and and spent her early career climbing the ladder in global finance. And then she made enough money to buy a professional basketball team. And she married the CEO of a company that eventually owned the New York stock exchange. And then she, uh, I think eventually, I think the last thing she was doing before she got appointed, she was like founding a cryptocurrency company and like, that's fine. You were successful. That's all great, but that's not public service. And that's not a, like an experience, a background that like gives you this like unique identity that makes you ready to serve the people of Georgia in the U S Senate. Like it just doesn't. And I know that like, if she was to come out and sort of be a Mitt Romney type politician, that's a real quick way to lose a Republican primary. Um, and, and not a very popular place to be, but my sense of her based on her career and on her background and how inauthentic this Trumpy conservative version of her sounds is that is that she is much closer to that in terms of her real personality and experience and and her own life story. Um, But I guess she can't, she can't be that on the campaign trail and expect to win, I guess. All right, well, we will leave that there for today. Kelly Leffler, you may prove us both wrong and and hold on to this seat. And then we're going to get a really interesting uh, yet another election you would be in 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 2022. That's that's coming attractions for her to try to win a full six year term if she's ultimately successful in this cycle. But for now, we are going to leave that there as we uh, finish up this recording. We're two weeks from Election Day. So if you haven't yet, uh, make your plan to vote, uh, figure out where your precinct is, figure out if you can do early voting. Um be sure, you know, don't don't let that election day come up too quickly without having figured out how you're going to let your voice be heard. Uh, Nabila, thank you as always to, for for joining the show. It was great to have you back. Thanks for having me again. Alrighty, I will talk to you again soon. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks as always to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all. 